You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Good morning and welcome to Saturday Morning Live. Uh, it is the 1st of October, and uh, you're joined by myself, Shazal alone and my co-presenters in the studio today, uh, Hamza Vanderman and Zeeshan Mirza. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. How are we today? Good. Weather's good, isn't it? It's cold, been really cold all week, but uh, felt good this morning. Indeed, indeed. Fresh mornings, as they say, but... Uh, are we heading into a winter of discontent? That is the um, big question on uh, everyone's minds, I guess. It's going to be, um, I think, a challenging winter, no doubt about it, uh, with all this going on, and we'll be discussing that. Um, obviously, economics have dominated the stories this week. Um, you know, we've sort of got back into the day-to-day of uh, government, obviously, after the Queen's passing and the period of mourning that's happened in the UK. Um, but it's been a, an exciting week um, for... <laughs> For one mention of a word, um, but um, that will be our main topic. We'll talk about economics. We'll talk about the the fallout, the effect on culture, on society, and uh, religion as well uh, in this day and age. So we'll touch on those as a main topic. Obviously, we'll have our news roundup initially, but feel free to call us. We are a live show. Uh, you can call us, and if you wish to get in contact, on o two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's o two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or at our Twitter handle at Voice of Islam UK or on the website www.voiceofislam.co.uk So, gentlemen, uh, we will kick off with our news roundup. What's been happening in the world this week, Hamza? So, obviously, with the big um, uh, political movement and big uh, movement in the markets, which we'll cover as the main topic, but there's still some other uh, quite important things going on that, you know, we need to cover. Uh, And firstly, Mm. I think it's important that we uh, we talk COVID again. So, um, clearly, we've uh, you know, come out of uh, what was a very challenging uh, period, and um, you'd be forgiven, I think, now for almost forgetting that there is any COVID out there. Almost, you know, yeah. most people now yeah. continue as usual. I I haven't seen a, a mask on the public transport yeah. uh, in a long time, or in a shop for a long time, um, and so. Um, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it that, that it doesn't actually even exist at all. And so, you know, this week we saw um, actually COVID rates go up for the highest uh, amount since I think um, since the spring earlier this year, up 14% this week on week. Uh, and there's o- now over a million people in hospital again with um, with COVID. So look, it, it is still about and I think people we just need to be uh, remain wary um so that we don't get ourselves into the same position we've been in over the last uh, last couple of years um the government has started to roll out its next uh, booster program so yep. i think over over 55s or over 60s are now getting their um covid boosters as well as flu boosters so you know we'd just say that you know if you are offered that opportunity um you know take that you know covid is about the um um uh, vaccinations were clearly very very effective you know earlier in the pandemic mm. at pushing those off um and so you know it's important that we continue to take those um successful steps uh, those steps that were successful before so that it so that there's no chance of um of those impact those awful impacts that we saw previously re-emerging sure so i mean generally speaking i mean i, I don't know if you guys um have been um, asked to come back into the offices but uh, i'm hearing more of that i mean obviously myself um you know people that i know companies are now of the expectation that you know the working from home hybrid does exist but they want to see people and you know faces and interaction uh, are you guys seeing you know regardless of covid now uh, that that's the way going forward 
Yeah, I mean, we're um, yeah. Similarly, we're on. Um, originally, it was an encouraged three three a week. It's now a mon- mandatory three a week. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, you're absolutely right. That's the that is the direction of travel, isn't it? There's still going to be a bit more flexibility, and you know, more flexibility than there was before COVID. But mm. you know, I think you're looking at um, people trying people trying more forcefully than before let's say to 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 get people in um, but it's an interesting dynamic because there are obviously other companies who want to go with maximum flexibility and that creates a, some healthy competition in the uh uh in the market for who you want to work for yeah mm. it's interesting isn't it because i question whether companies still have a covid policy because i mean mm. there's certain organizations um i've been interacting with recently and if somebody's unwell, they're not necessarily suggesting that that person should stay home. So even the whole issue around contagion, yeah, I don't know how important that is anymore. Yeah, I think maybe that's sort of uh, passed. You know, that 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 ship has passed now in that regard. I think people are less fearful of it. You know, you're, you're vaccinated or not by choice. That's down to you mm-hmm. now. Uh, majority probably are. Um, but I guess when when you're not on that the government's um, you know radar to say that you know contagion is an issue and we need to be careful I think all of that's kind of now really died down is that because the economy just can't withstand anything like another you know even a, <laughs> f- a smaller form of a lockdown yeah and it's also about the narrative on the NHS right like as in mm. it was a real big burden on the NHS yeah but what is it now because the figures would suggest that burden is still there um, but so I think so I think on the NHS they're saying that you know there's over a million people in hospital with covid though the the majority of those are in have covid but are being treated for something else so they're not in hospital because of covid they're I in see. hospital with covid but being treated for something else which is why the um the ONS so the the uh, body responsible in the UK for stats and data effectively are saying it's they they're saying it's too early for them to definitively say whether this is actually a real spike or not um but it's just a mo- it's just a direction of travel that I think we've all got to be aware of and like as you say it'll be interesting to see if there if it does you know continue to grow whether the government changes policy or or um has more guide or more forceful guidance i think you're probably right shaz it's less likely i think that they're going to come with legal policies that companies must follow because mm. of where we are in in the economy and and coming out of covid but i think they it's likely that they start to be a bit more forceful on the guidance in terms of if you know you've got covid yeah don't come out yeah. whereas i think well, at the moment that isn't really the guidance almost up to you isn't it yeah pretty much you can have you can be covid positive and, and go where you want kind of thing yeah. they're yeah. not going to stop you from from going anywhere but i think the um the other thing we've got to be wary of and i think we'll touch on it a little bit later in terms of um, energy costs and, and and what's happening here in the uk is that come the winter you know, perhaps people who, you know, may not be able to afford, you know, a certain amount of, you know, energy bills and what have you may sort of dial back on that. You know, that does lead you to perhaps, you know, picking up more bugs and flus and what have you simply because of, you know, the temperature that you may have in your house. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think, you know, it's obviously flu goes up in the winter. And yeah. I, do we have data on whether COVID is going up in the winter? And then I guess whether you if you mix it with that point of you know energy costs going up and people kind of less willing to spend money on energy yeah then yeah you could argue that's a kind of recipe for an increase in covid cases yeah, i mean look last year and the year before 
fine you know we were all told to stay at home and that's fine but you'd be cozy you know you turn your heat your, your, <laughs> your central heating up and you know you're there at home you might be doing home workouts you may be looking at you know watching netflix i mean that was uh you know life um as we knew it back then but now it's it's a very different dynamic i think completely in terms of energy yeah i mean totally i mean yeah you're, you're totally right i think even though the government isn't um, for whatever reason, pushing the message that people should be more careful with their energy use. Um, I think individuals understand, you know, what's happening and naturally are making those compromises uh, themselves. And I, I think, you know, I just think most people in the country will not be putting the heating on as much as they did last year. Yeah. They'll be putting on more, a lot more likely to be putting on more layers. Absolutely. Um, and as you say, that does make it a little bit less... Uh, well, a lot less comfortable mm. uh, when you if you if you think you have to stay at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, I mean, I've I've been seeing like on social media, you know, people trying to be innovative around it. You know, using tea light heating systems and oil type radiators. And yeah. in 2022, it's quite surprising to see people using primitive techniques to warm up their home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or just yeah. sticking on extra socks and that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's move on to that. So from this weekend, the new energy tariff uh, comes in. Yep. So uh, the the price rises that have been spoken about for the last few months actually kick in this weekend. So just so everyone's aware. Um, and what does that mean? That means that um, for the average usage, a household will um, be spending about 2500 or at least that's where the the usage cap is at the government's cap um, and the government has will be will be um, subsidizing that by 400 pounds split across the bill mm-hmm. um, which you'll which you should see automatically come off your bill um, split monthly so it's not a cap in terms of um, uh, total amount of usage so don't think you can s- um, switch on your lights and radiators and heating uh, and you'll be capped at 2500 and you can't spend more than that mm. o- over the course of the year that is not what the cap is the cap is a cap on the uh, unit price and the cap on the um, the uh, per kilowatt as it were price of the energy sure so if you spend if you use a lot more energy you could easily spend more than 2500 the 2500 number is simply there as an average mm. and so what the government has just said is <clears throat> if you take that capped unit price yep. and multiply it by the average usage in a house mm. there's 2500 um but I think it's really important. I don't know why the government hasn't been clear on this. It's really important to, that our listeners understand that mm. 2500 is not a cap. You could easily spend more than that. The cap is on the unit price. And if you use that, use your energy a lot more and you have the heating on all winter, you could easily run above that. So it is important. Mm. It is important people understand that and they can make their own decisions after that on what they want to do. Um, in our household, that means that heating's not coming on yet right yeah. <laughs> and that's the first time um i've heard somebody Explain illustrate it. it in that way yeah, in yeah, a absolutely. really really clear structured way and mm. it really begs the question that what you know why wasn't it explained in that way it's it, i don't to be honest i don't really understand um, politicians have always uh, had a problem and always come uh, into trouble when they've spoken about don't use your heating as much put an extra jumper on yeah that type yeah. of conversation has always for whatever reason not gone down well with the public it's so i've always thought it's a pretty straightforward sensible thing to say right <laughs> yeah. if you know if you put a jumper on yeah. in your house that's not the worst it's not like that uncomfortable yeah and you 
use your heating less i don't really understand why that's always been such a taboo thing to say but it has been yep. and i think that plays into the, gov- the the uk government's unwillingness to try to say to the public use your heating less they yep. just don't want to say that for whatever reason mm. and so instead they've got themselves into the situation where they talk about a cap of 2500 pounds which is very misleading, yeah, um, and you know, quite quite dangerous, really. But I don't, yeah, I don't really understand why it's come to that, um, especially especially because it's not just the, the impact on individuals um, directly in terms of how much they could spend and then being misled. There's also this winter expected to be mm. um, a real crunch in terms of the country's energy usage. Um, yeah. And so if you, there's a higher risk than ever of blackouts yes. across the country, actually, the government should be pushing a message like they have done in other countries. It says, you know, again, don't use as much energy if you can. Yeah. One, because it will save you money. Yeah. But two, because the country needs is under a real crunch, yeah. and we don't we want to could be able to control this, and we don't want any blackouts. And if everyone's just using as much energy as they want, there's a very high risk of that. Um, you know, obviously, look when you look at I think that that we look at, you have to look at the greater good. I think that's that's the the discussion that we're having here, right? And that's something we'll look at when we talk about the economy as a whole. You know, how can we sort of pull together in in a time where we're heading into you know sort of a, an economic recession? Let's let's be real about it, and that's what we're facing yeah. uh, right now in the UK. And, and I've heard the the haves and the have nots um, you know analogy so many so many times now. Um, so that's something I think. You know, we we need to look at it as a society. You know, what 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 can we find? Because, like you just said, in terms of the government, there are certain things they don't want to say. Why? Because you know, the, the, when come election time, you know, those are sort of sort of things that people will you know remember and will be in their memories. Yeah. Um, but um, I think in terms of uh, the way um, the the economy is heading as a whole, we need to look at bigger solutions. And it, that's a great point. And you know, I think. Because it is about reliance, right? And that was emphasised when Russia invaded Ukraine, which we'll come on to later. Mm. Um, you know, how much reliance is there on, on Russian energy? And then it's against the backdrop, obviously, of climate change. So should we be switching mm. how we consume, you know, fuel or, or energy? Um, and it's all kind of colliding together. And, you know, prices of, you know, uh, conventional energy are, are going up. And so... I think, you know, maybe this is what will push the transition and kind of underpin the awareness around climate change, which is firstly, you can't, you know, rely on necessarily all of your neighbours or, or, you know, the countries in the world for, for energy. Um, and if you can't, then what's the solution? And you have to come up with a self-sustaining one, right? Uh, ideally. I mean, yeah, go on. just just today, I've had a, had a message come in, obviously, from one of the listeners on the show um, saying, I don't agree with the rules about turning heating off. The public work hard, and so it deserves basic living, including heating. Heating the house shouldn't be a luxury, rather a basic right. We're a first world country. Plus, people work hard, and then we're being told to live minimal lives over faults that aren't our own, like energy problems and politics around energy. We vote politicians to ensure they provide for us as a society. We can't be a first world country like this. No, look, those are, those are, I think, in terms of the long term direction of the country, obviously correct. Although I would argue that you know, it being your human right to walk around in the T-shirt when it's not degrees outside in your house, it probably isn't, you know, probably yeah. isn't your, you know, put a jumper on. It's not, 
It's not crazy, is it? But having said that, you know, we are where we are right now. Zishan made a really important point mm. on climate change, which is for the good of the uh, of the entire world. And there's no bad. It's no bad thing encouraging the public to use less energy. Mm. I don't understand that. That is not in itself a bad thing to encourage people, right? You know, encouraging people or thinking people should be able to use as much energy as they want mm. as their human right is also a strange thing when you talk about climate change, the impact it can have on countries around the world. You've seen what's happening in Pakistan. You've mm. seen what's happened in uh, other really hot areas with um, with droughts, and you're seeing you're seeing these events. Right. These are connected. These aren't just you can't just live in the UK and say, well, we're going to do all this and and expect there to be no impact. So. I think there's a few things that you've got to uncouple there in the long term, of course, but there's also a short term problem. There's a short term problem right now and over the next few years. And you can either say, oh, the government should have sorted this out. I, I should be able to do what I want. Or you can say this is a situation we're in. There's lots of factors at play here. We all need to make compromises in order to get through it. And I think that, you know, that's where I sit. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um... I would say that um, for... It, you know, and the question is a really good question in the sense that we're talking about affordable energy, and yeah. when we're talking about affordable energy, you know, what we're saying is that the energy companies are at a point where they're not able to provide, you know, wholesale energy at an affordable cost. And the, why, you know, why is that the case? Now, obviously, the question was raised about profits mm -hmm. um, and whether they're going towards, you know, the right things. And it's a really, really tricky argument because as far as fossil fuels are concerned, you know, you, what are you investing in? You're investing to maintain, replace kind of basic equipment. But then, you know, energy companies are arguing that actually they're innovating and that they're trying to come up with more efficient ways of using energy. Yeah. And so the scrutiny from government and the public on energy companies, on whether that investment that you know that they're doing in their innovation is appropriate you know it's not it's not entirely there it's not entirely clear whether energy companies are just distributing profits to shareholders yeah or they actually are investing and innovating and i think until we get the answer to that question you know that's probably where the, the answer to that particular question lies is is you know what can energy companies do? Yeah, no, and I, I agree with that point, but I think the difficult point in this as well, so you talked about fossil fuels and then you talk about alternate energy, but the A&R that has to go in to get, you know, alternate energy to the space that we need it so we have a sustainable supply of energy that can be rolled out appropriately, yep. that's going to cost money. And our energy companies, all right, they are charging more. We get that. They're earning profits for their shareholders, which is what companies do. They're not doing it for the greater good. They provide a service and their shareholders, you know, should benefit from that because members of the public can buy shares in energy companies yeah. and, and they, they will do and, and that will form part of their pensions, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's it's a little bit of a tricky one because using fossil fuels, you know what the cook, uh, costs are. They're already baked in. You know what the infrastructure is. You know what you get out of it. So are we really in a space or are energy companies or, you know, country? I mean, Biden's uh, political ticket was alternate energy. You know, that's what he's going to do in the U.S. But I don't think they're quite there. I mean, other than electric cars, 
you know, wind energy, solar energy, how much, how reliant are our countries on those? I think you're spot on. The infrastructure just isn't there. And, you know, uh, I think when you go up north and you see wind, tur- wind turbines and you read about why there aren't more wind turbines, yeah. it seems to be a cosmetic reason. And I think where councils have tried to do kind of solar, solar panel initiatives, they've failed because they've gone all in, you know, kind of hoping that it's going to be the next big thing and put, put in all this investment. I was just reading about Thurk council i think being in close to a billion pounds worth of debt on a solar project right um and you know they've gone all in but the infrastructure to actually support solar for example in you know in thurrock and you know to actually have it at a, a kind of county-wide scale just isn't there and right. so they've wasted all this money and so it's the question is, is how serious are we about transitioning to renewable yeah, I think that's obviously one one side of things as well. But I, I think if you look back and dial things back and look at how, you know, these were public-owned entities, right? The government used to run energy companies and now everything's gone private. Are we suffering because of those, um, you know, capitalistic rules? Yeah, look, um, I, look, the windfall tax is a really interesting one, isn't it? So the, the, the energy companies are clearly making huge disproportionate profits at the moment yep. because of the... The, the price, um, the movements in the in the commodity markets, right? Yeah. Um, and and the, I think it is bizarre that the government isn't looking at increasing the the existing windfall tax that that's in place, um, because that's only been moving one way. And and you know I would ag- I would agree that that's a strange thing. You know, Labour Party did last week. Uh, I think one of their flagship policies is going to be a green, uh, nationalised energy company. Yeah. Um, question is do you really uh, have confidence in the government whether it's the Labour Party or the Conservative Party running yeah. an energy company I mean that's a, I, think, I think that's a really interesting question and, and there's there's a whole load of co- uh, negatives with nationalisation but I think for me the strongest argument for nationalisation is looking at other models within the country so I think transport for London um, have proven to be not kind of wildly more, but slightly more efficient than uh, the privately owned uh, National Rail, I would argue. Mm. Um, now, obviously, they don't have to think about an expanding network. The underground is limited in its scope, like in, in how much it can go outwards. But um, the the money management ha- there has been any profit just gets reinvested into the system. I struggle to see how that's a problematic model. Um, and you're right, there will always be mismanagement. Mm. But I think that basic model of nationalisation is is key to at least kind of getting the ethics right around, you know, utilities. I think that's right. Look, I think in areas like trains uh, and also uh, actually the water companies, um, there's an argument that there's such little ability for there to be competition in the market um, that it makes sense. Energy is the one where I'm slightly... It's, it's slightly trickier, I think, because it is a, it is a problem, or at least it is it's a, it's closer to a, a real market with competition and options, mm. um, and therefore you'd have thought that that could create a better a better outcome. But I totally agree with you on trains and um, and water. Yeah, <laughs> there is clearly an inability for there to be any competition or choice in the market. So mm. you're a private company with a monopoly of your <laughs> of your area. It doesn't make sense. The reason why it works for TFL is there's no there's no um 
there's no competition yeah yeah there's no competition on the underground you haven't got a choice yeah and therefore it makes total sense but it's the same premise as on the overground yeah you've got there's no ability for any competition so it doesn't work and 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 i think that is that's right the the difference is with the energy firms because there is Mm. there or there at least there should be some competition in that market yeah um, and maybe maybe the solution is a balance, right? So I think I was reading about EDF and yeah, which is how, owned by the French state in majority, right? Yeah, in majority, yeah. right? Yeah. But minority private shareholders. Yeah, I it's believe. about eighty six percent French government, and they did want to take it hundred percent, but it hasn't gone through. I think they were talking about in the last three months. Or so. Yeah. So we, you know, so obviously they were making this joke that you know whoever's with EDF, you're contributing to French public services, you know, and you know that's obviously a really interesting concept, and I, you know. I think we need to explore the notion of um, private shareholding in energy generally, right? Because I was reading about, uh, I think the Chinese Communist um, st- uh, Party have a stake in our nuclear program. Um, right. So you have like, you have all this kind of strange makeup of, of privatization in energy. Mm. Um, and it's not entirely clear. It, it does in now seem to be entirely for profit and less about innovation, which mm. is why you've heard the nationalization argument. Uh, re reemerge. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. R- Any other angry comments from <laughs> listeners? <Sheldon>? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think they've they've sort of calmed down. Um, so yeah, let's see. Let's see. It's, it's always uh, good to get interaction on the show. So uh, and hear different opinions because obviously you know we'll talk and and see where we come out with things. And, Absolutely. Uh, but it, it's good to know what people think. You know. Uh, Welcome the challenge. Welcome yeah, the challenge. Of course. Um, so aside from energy um, referendums, Ishan, we yeah. So um, we so we've been talking about energy, and I think Russia, Ukraine, has you know been at the, the top of the news list for quite some time now. And mm. Putin, um, you know, he invaded Ukraine, I believe, early February earlier in the year. Um, there were some sanctions that followed. Um, it failed to deter Putin. I think Putin's continued his um, mobilization. Mm. Um, and we can talk about conscription as well, yeah. but um, you know the the sanctions were focused on the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, and it was because Putin had annexed those regions uh, and essentially officially declared them as, as a part of Russia. Um, now he's gone for an additional two, and it was really interesting as well. I, I can't remember the name of the additional two regions, but there's four in total now, and so the way he secured. Um, uh, essentially, um, state owner, you know, state rule over over these uh, regions is he ran kind of um, mock a, a kind of fraud, fraudulent type referendum yeah. where if you look at if you look on social media, I think there was uh, people were coming to um, collect their uh, voting slips and then being escorted by Russian military and police right. um, to their homes to vote. Uh, and then it would be put in a secure box that was being held by those police. So it was it was a really uh, surreal thing to see, you know, to see voting in that way. Uh, <laughs> obviously, you know, it's very, very corrupt. You can tell, you know, off the bat, it's very, very corrupt. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Putin was also behaving in quite a nationalist way. So I think when he went to celebrate the, the, um, the winning one of these regions, you know, he was seen kind of chanting, you know, Russian anthems with, with um, different politicians, etc. So it's been a really momentous thing for Russia and Putin. Mm. And it's like, it's interesting because it, it seems to have come in the face of all of the criticism Russia's getting about the war. So it's almost like Putin's kind of doing these things as if to kind of say dramatically like 
you're all wrong it's going really well we're winning the war like look at these extra regions that we've kind of taken over yeah so um that's where we're at, at the moment it's obviously kind of um stoking the fire and i think when i was reading this morning they're saying that this is probably aside from starting the war this is the worst escalation of the war since the beginning um so you know it it's getting pretty bad now in the sense that if russia doesn't kind of let up and you know mm. ukraine uh, continues to resist um then you know you can only see by proxy other kind of countries getting involved uh, from this point so it is quite a scary point i would say i mean his uh, putin's difficulty i guess is um and the reason why dubai did this um referendum and yeah. annexation is because it appears to be at least it's always difficult to tell isn't it it appears to be that he's losing support within within russia and that's always that's always going to be the big problem because yeah you know, that again it's difficult to tell isn't it what bits are true and which bits are but you yeah. have the you know the western media at least um you know showing all those images and reporting of uh, lots of men trying to flee the country when he was mobilizing troops. Yep, um, yep. Lots of fights and arguments at the centers where they were being conscripted um, because they didn't want, you know, they don't want to fight essentially. Um, and if, you know, if Putin loses the public support in Russia openly and there's more challenge within Russia, yep. you know, that's how this, you know, really that's how this war ends with the Russian people essentially saying, well, we're not willing, and especially the men saying, we're not willing to die in this cause yeah. and not and not going forward. That's, you know, if he doesn't have the support of the country, then there's nothing they can, you know, well, there's very little they can really do. The annexation is about trying to show the country there is purpose to this mm. where, and, and success. But it's difficult to see if that, how long that can continue, because there's probably still a lot of scepticism uh, in the country. Yeah, but do you not risk, you know, sort of Putin just pressing the nuclear button? Then, if he gets to that stage where he doesn't want to lose face, obviously, and if the country's not supporting him, well, he's, what tools has he got left then? The nuclear one, the nuclear argument is a really interesting one because. Mm. Um, I was listening to an American general and he was like, the first thing about nuclear weapons is if they drop one in Ukraine, Putin needs to note the wind direction of like, right. <laughs> you know, and the proximity of those nuclear weapons. So he was saying it's unlikely. Yeah. I think um, it's more in the case of where you see other countries yeah. um, potentially step forward. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's important to draw the parallel as well. So even Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan yes. and then... Um, you know, in the face of that, you had Putin meeting with Xi uh, Ping, so yep. and you know discussing uh, reserve currencies and uh, you know strategic kind of uh, military strategic relations. Yeah, and so I mean, India is buying a lot of cheap oil from Russia as well. And India, India has been so interesting in all of this, right? Yeah. So the the classic kind of um, you know British ally, India, mm. right? Um, had, you know, effectively turned around and in a really kind of outspoken way, they had Indian diplomats touring the world, giving speeches on the issue. Mm. They were saying, well, why wouldn't we buy cheap Russian oil? You know, right. what obligation do we have not yeah. to buy cheap Russian oil? Yes. Where, you know, we see ourselves as a an emerging superpower market. Absolutely, and then they're importers of oil, so Ex they have to, they're reliant. Exactly. Um, and so suddenly the entire kind of world balance and all the relationships we're familiar with yeah. are completely up in the air at the moment. Um, and Ukraine has, you know, led that 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, you, you didn't think such a small country would have such a you know a ripple effect into the you know the the global world that we live in now. But that's literally what's happened here, and then everyone is sort of taking sides. But you know, with the whole NATO uh, argument as well. I mean, wh- where do you think we're heading with that now? I mean, look, it's, it's it's really difficult to say, isn't it? But I mean, the um, it appears that more countries want to join NATO. Yeah. Um, because they are also apprehensive of uh, Russian action. Sure. And what that simultaneously does is mm. make Russian more... Emboldens them more, right? Yeah, makes them... Um, well, makes them more wary, more mm. more aggressive, because they have more... Um, they would say that there's more aggression on their doorstep. Yeah. So, you know, if you... You know, if you're, you know, if you do put yourself, it's difficult, isn't it? You put them, you put yourself in the shoes of a country that is surrounded by its enemies. Yeah. Surrounded by enemies. You know, what do you do? You probably, you've got to, you've got to try and do something. Um, so it's a really, di- it's a really difficult situation, um, and I don't see there being an easy way out because the de-escalation seems to be something that both parties don't, you know, a slow compromise de-escalation isn't something that anyone wants not what Putin wants and the West don't want to appear soft as it were in allowing him to backtrack so I don't really know what the route what the route out is other than that kind of optimistic one where the Russian people kind of somehow get rid of him or the rest of Russian military you know turn on Putin and oust him but I don't know how likely that is in honesty yeah I mean, I, I guess there's there's also a question of whether uh, Putin's nuclear's uh, nuclear weapons still work, and you know I think there's a lot of scrutiny in certain countries about their nuclear weapons, and so you have like these science journals almost attesting to like the modern technology in these nuclear weapons, but with Russia not so much. So like right. with Russia, it's obviously always been a bit of a secret. And I think looking at their war in Ukraine, it became very apparent that a lot of their equipment was very dated and mm. broken. Um, mm. So I, I don't see how nuclear weapons would be any different, but that's complete speculation. <laughs> <laughs> I like the caveat there. Um, but I mean, obviously we had we saw some comments from uh, President Biden. Um, he's warned um, that the United States will not be intimidated by reckless threats. Uh, from Vladimir Putin, he said they would forever. He, um, so Putin had said and appeared to make a veiled threat to use nuclear weapons to defend the region. Uh, they would forever be Russian, but Ukraine vowed to liberate them. Um, I think one of the interesting comments that he made is that the U.S. set the precedent by uh, using uh, nuclear weapons against Japan at the end of World War Two. Right. So, <laughs> okay. You know, he threw that right out there. Well, um, and I think <laughs> one conversation I was privy to last night about Russia. Right, mm. I, I want to address this, which was. Um, I think everyone's in agreement that Putin is evil and, you know, what he's doing is wrong and, you know, it's more dictatorship and ego than it is anything else, right? Yeah. But um, I I don't think, you know, the the invasion of Ukraine is is wrong on on all levels, Hmm. but it doesn't change the fact that Russia only invaded Ukraine because Ukraine wanted to join NATO, which would mean military intelligence for America. Yeah. on Russia mm. right and that could never be allowed so I think to to say that it could have gone any other way yeah. you know if if Ukraine wanted to be part of NATO 
fine. That's acceptable. A country should be allowed to sign up to whatever yeah. treaty they want. Yeah. But if Scotland was signing up to some kind of North Korean treaty, yeah. we would have something to say about it, right? So you can't. I think it's it's slightly ill-informed to say you know st- geopolitically mm. Russia should stay quiet when they and when Ukraine was signing up to NATO. I think that's an inevitable conflict, and you know I think Ukraine invited that as much as Russia imposed it. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair point to make. Um, yeah, we have to look at um, yeah the sensitivity of the region. Really, um, I think none of us would ever justify you know um, you know what's happened in the invasion itself. Um, but um, yeah, I think uh, politics is on a thread needle sometimes, and uh, it just takes you know one person or one country to do something which goes against, and you know this is what we've unravelled to. But yeah, I, I think this is more ego generated and, yep. and what have you from Putin's side uh, so that's that sort of draws that part out of it but um, but yeah I mean I think it's nothing to do with the greater good and that's something that we'll touch on when we when we move ahead to our main topic um, but uh, fine we'll take a, a short break uh, from our news roundup and then we'll head into our main topic which will be the economy and the effects on society please join us after the break and again feel free to contact us if you wish to voice an opinion we'll see you after the break just behave naturally within the confines of Islamic teachings and that's the best way of doing it. I've spoken on this subject different, uh, at different times with uh, emphasis on different areas of this question according to the uh, context in which the question has been asked. Sometimes the British people ask this question, sometimes the Muslims, sometimes the Orientals, and sometimes the Westerners. So they have their own different interests in the same question. So I try to answer them all, but the answer which I gave despite the different emphasis is basically the same, which is to maintain ideal atmosphere of the family in the house and to to create attraction in your family style so that the gravity the center of gravity is always within the house not outside the family members whoever they are whether the children boys girls or grown-ups they return to the heaven of their house with a natural longing for it. As long as their outside is somehow tiresome. When they are back to home, that is peace. If this atmosphere is created and maintained, then no social problems can ever evolve from such a wonderful living of, in, a, in an intact family structure. Moreover, an atmosphere of mutual love, and not only love, but mutual respect must be maintained. treated even small children with respect, and also showed the same respect to his own slaves. So if you are respectful, loving and respectful, generous and respectful, to the younger generation, 
but also, also firm in discipline, then this makes the ideal home. And such generation as, brought, as are brought up in this atmosphere have a perfect balance between discipline and love and respect. Such ideal homes never see any disasters of uh, the younger generation having gone astray. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Uh, it's the 1st of October, and you're joined by myself, Shazil Lone, and my co-presenters in the studio, um, Hamza Vanderman and Zishan Mirza. Uh, we just did our news roundup, and the last um, sort of story uh, we discussed was what was happening with the update in the Russia and Ukraine uh, crisis. And just wanted to touch on uh, the words uh, of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Mashur Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the uh, Ahmadi community, um, he had delivered a Friday sermon on the 25th of February 2022 and he said the current world situation has become extremely precarious and there's a real danger the crisis between Russia and Ukraine can escalate and spread much further afield. Certainly the situation is not just limited to one country, rather many countries will be engulfed if the conflict continues to deteriorate. Its impact will be catastrophic and its horrendous consequences will continue to reverberate and impact upon generations to come. Thus I pray that Allah the Almighty man, uh, may enable mankind to recognize God Almighty and may they stop toying with the lives of innocent people simply to fulfill their own worldly interests. Um, he went on to say that we as Amdi Muslims can only pray and seek to guide mankind and we have always done this and will forever continue to do so. Uh, certainly at this time Amdi Muslims should pray with great fervency for the peace of the world. May Allah the Almighty save the humanity from the state of war that has erupted because of this. the situation worsens then the horrific consequences will be such that mankind cannot even imagine. We can only pray that may Almighty, Allah the Almighty save humanity. Um, from what His Holiness's words are, and that was what uh, five months ago, or a little bit, sorry, seven months ago now, um, it doesn't look like we, we've de-escalated really in any way, shape, or form, and it just it feels like we're heading into a, a real entrenched situation, unfortunately. Yeah, and you know, Hazul touches on the notion of um, you know other countries, and that's what really sticks out for me because I think when I learned about the concept of proxy wars, mm. that's what really scared me was how intricate the web of agreements are between countries yes. and how we're almost clueless to it because nobody's really doing that international relations analysis daily. Yeah. And so you don't know how the, the house of cards is going to kind of come up, like fall apart. You don't know mm. which country is going to, you know, back who and who's going to withdraw economic services from who. And, and so, you know, it can really uh, accelerate into deterioration of um, relations and, you know, world war suddenly becomes a very accurate way to describe it again. It does, and I think perhaps more so in the sense that obviously the, the last world war that we had was, you know, Europe and America essentially in, you know, one country. Um, you know, now you're talking about multiple um, different players and we, we talked about India just in the break. We touched on it earlier, but China obviously is a massive part of that as well. And then with China, I mean, I heard this week that there was talk that there was house arrest of Xi Jinping you know, the up upcoming party conference, you know, those sort of things don't help you, um, yeah. you know, in terms of stability. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, economics is something we're going to touch on, but you cannot blame countries like India going for their economic independence and securing things for their people. Yeah. But I think that's where this whole, I mean, we talk about Brexit, we talk about this scenario, and it seems self-interest is coming to the fore, and that's something I think we all need to look at. Yeah, I agree. 
it's not an easy point but uh touching on that and uh going to our main topic now uh we'll have uh 10 minutes before the break but uh just intro us uh hamza and z in terms of uh the budget uh the mini budget that we saw from our new chancellor and uh you know pm in office what do we i, I just i just want to start by saying hamza warned us and he did say you know that if we don't get rishi there was we were likely going to end up in this position so <laughs> if you want to tune back to the show from a few weeks back hamza did warn us hamza paxman tell us yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite uh quite a few weeks for the new uh for the new administration isn't it true um I mean, in my office, when someone said that we lost a queen and we lost a pound within about a week. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So the mini budget that wasn't a budget um, yeah. has um, had quite the uh, ramifications uh, this past week, um, which is in one in well. It was astounding to watch it every day. Something else quite uh, incredible happening. Um, and so what did we first have first we had uh the 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 pound coming off a cliff yeah. uh, and almost reaching uh parity with the dollar yeah which yep. was which was something to behold um and then we had statements from the bank of england uh, and the chancellor trying to reassure the markets yeah um, but not really not really doing anything because uh, there was there was no reassurance yeah and so uh, the cost of uk borrowing spiked uh gilts up um to what 4.4 percent uh stopped at about 390 when i left the office which yesterday. i think is the highest it's been for how long chuzzle um i think you're probably talking 30 40 plus years maybe i don't know so the high, and so yeah. that and and so what does that mean for listeners it basically means that the uk the cost of uh, uk borrowing uh, grew rapidly um which is essentially a sign of investors not believing that the uk government can pay all its debts which is uh, mm. extremely worrying um so while that was happening clearly uh, awful uh, and then the bank of england had to step in on wednesday Yes. On Wednesday, um, because it appeared that um, pension funds were not going to be able to cover the cost of their liabilities for defined pension schemes because they had been um, uh, trying to, uh, over the last decade or so, in an attempt to shore up their finances and be able to meet the cost of those defined um, benefit schemes, had been investing in products that had become uh uh un un uh, unviable anymore mm. uh, and so the bank of england needed to step in so now you've got the bank of england uh about to in, in, in increase interest rates um, yep. significantly they've said that so uh, at the next meeting in october we expect i think now almost a 1% uh, um uh points increase yeah i think they're talking about 1.5% over the next two meetings basically 1.5% over the next two meetings which is incredible Um, much higher than had earlier been uh, expected Um, I think the direction of travel has always been expected but it's the speed at which the the increases are now going to happen which is is different Um, and we've seen the Bank of England step in so that's a so on one hand they want to take money out of the system on the other hand they are pumping money in uh, which, uh, which is strange and then we've now got on the one hand the government making a load of um, uh, tax cuts uh, and um, 
supporting houses with a big energy um, support scheme, but on the other hand, policy that is directly resulting in a spike in mortgage rates, which will wipe out any of those uh, gains that will go in the pocket. So... Mm. Who knows what the government strategy is in all of this, because all of the policies seem to be uh, counterproductive with one another. Um, and meanwhile, inflation continues at uh, 9%, I think, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they need the, they want to get the target rate down to 2%. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how do you go about doing that? So, I mean, for, for the benefit of our listeners, of course, inflation is when there's no price stability and, and prices continue to go higher. Why? Because there's demand and people... Um, you know, continue to buy goods, services, etc., and it pushes the prices up. Um, um, you know, perpetually almost. So the counter to that is that you start raising interest rates, so it becomes more um, attractive for people to put cash uh, on deposit, and they'll earn X amount, and therefore they're not putting uh, money into goods and services and pushing those prices higher and higher. Um, you know, the, that, that's been the normal tools uh, of any central bank is that when they do, their mandate is to keep inflation under control. So we don't end up in, you know, sort of, um, you know, like smaller countries like, you know, Venezuela and Ecuador where currencies just spiral out of control and, and you know, those sort of things happen. But I think what's happening now is one, you've got Liz Truss who's just come into power. Yeah. She wants to be popular. How do you do that? You make people happier you put more money in their pocket and you know that they 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 obviously feel that they their their purse strings are not tightened but i think then on the other flip side when you've got inflation firing up and you know causing you such an issue is is you know which one do you decide to go for and i think it's it's definitely smacks of uh, short-termism in my view yeah there's a few things to unpack here isn't there if we start with um what was in the what was in the budget yep um um, we can then move on to um, how the markets reacted and maybe why the markets reacted as they did and yeah. what the government is now thinking in terms of its strategy going forward. So what was in the budget and why did it cause such problems? The first was the big, and, and, and don't forget, about 90% of this budget was pretty widely trailed. We knew uh, that all of this was um, was going to be in this mini budget and about 10% of the funding was was, I guess, uh, a shock to see in this budget, though I would argue Liz Truss was very clear that, that she was going to look to enact these policies throughout her leadership campaign. So on one hand, um, the market should have had a lot of this stuff priced in. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I think they were surprised to see it, the tax cut specifically right now. So what was in the budget? The first was the big, um, the central uh, um, piece of it in, in terms of funding was the energy support scheme that everybody was aware of, and that was the scheme to hold the uh, unit price of energy at this October level going forward. So it won't be it won't be moving um, up, which was it was expected to do again in March, um, and that is for both individuals and businesses because there was a big risk of lots of businesses folding because their energy bills were moving from like five thousand a year to fifty thousand a year, which obviously would have been untenable for them. So that was the centerpiece in terms of funding completely trail was completely expected everybody Mm. knew that policy was coming and that was the big piece of funding the second piece was the uh, was the tax cuts which were a surprise Mm -hmm. and that was one penny off uh, basic income tax uh, 20p to 19p on 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 the first element and it was a removal of the 45p tax for anyone earning over 150,000 pounds 
both were unexpected at this point in time. The actual fin- the actual financial impact, nowhere near as much as the um, energy support, but it was the the, the tone and the um, uh, and the fact, I guess, that it showed that she was serious about these tax cuts now. Whereas I think the market had expected them to come later on in her administration. Yep. Um, yep. Once maybe inflation, and once maybe the Bank of in- Bank of England had started to increase rates. Um, and then I think the third plank of her the budget was actually what wasn't in the budget. Uh, and right. that was just as much a surprise to markets as I think there's what was in it. And what wasn't in it, there was no spending cuts. So there was no indication of where money wasn't going to be spent anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no, um, there was nothing from the OBR or any other financial body testing the financial viability of this and where, where debts and where borrowing costs would be in five years and how this stuff would be paid back. And so I think those three things, one was the spending, one is the tax cuts, and one is um, the lack of these other pillars that the markets were looking for to to give them some um, comfort and assurance in terms of there being some long-term planning of UK government finances. And I think those three things together um, immediately caused that reaction on on, on the Monday. Yeah. Um, and, and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, obviously, it wasn't a, a, a good reaction. I think... Um the government as a whole obviously had misread the room and when you have the IMF coming and tell, telling you you know what are you doing or you know this is you know uh, a reckless policy almost and then you have you know your ratings agencies like Moody saying what you have done could affect the credit worthiness or your credit rating of your entire country then you have to think you know this is not basic you know base levels you know economics 101 that you do not you know cut taxes and raise interest rates at the same time it just doesn't make yep. economic sense um, we'll touch on uh, obviously this subject a little further um, we'll also talk about the interest of society we'll talk about interest because interest obviously is something which uh, Islam actually forbids um, you know is it a necessary evil that's something that we can talk about so uh, please join us after the break um, when we will continue on our main subject the economy the impact on society the fallout on us as a people Good morning. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. First of October, first of the month. Um, we are the Saturday Morning Live show here from our studios at Battle for Thu in Morden. Uh, you're joined by myself, Shazid Lone, and my co-presenters, Hamza Vanderman and Zeeshan Mirza. Um, we just started our main topic, uh, which was the mini-budget that we saw from the UK, the economic fallout that we've since seen, and how we see that affecting our lives and society as well. Mm. Uh, and our responses so yeah i think look, 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 i think before we go before we go into some of that i think it is worth um at least touching on um the government's arguments for these policies there's yep. been a lot of criticism um clearly and there's been a lot of um um uh, and there will be a lot of pain over the next few months um yep. maybe in the next couple next few years but let's at least give the um i think it's i think it's helpful to at least provide what the government what we think the government was trying to do in in this budget and what yep. you know if you had the prime minister or the chancellor or any other minister in front of you today what would be there yeah what, I mean, what, what how would they try to uh, explain yeah uh, what absolutely because it's easy to bash the government 
everyone does it over every issue but yeah let, very let, easy let, let's, ha- let's hear you play devil's advocate <laughs> so yeah I mean you obviously know my view but uh, yeah. <laughs> let's say what it is so mm. look, the government's view is that economic uh, growth in this country has been um, you know mediocre at best yeah. over the last decade and something significant needs to be done in order to um, to grow that and unleash that and um, if you do have economic growth at the level that they want it to be, which is two, two and a half percent, that does benefit everybody in society. Mm. It might benefit um, certain demographics more, but uh, if you do have a, a higher rate of economic growth in the country, yeah. that will help everybody. That will help the poorest people, that will help the richest people. It will. I mean, that's what economic growth does. Mm. So the government's argument is that um, it doesn't matter how we can create that. Mm. If more of those benefits go to the rich and the rich get even richer, to some extent they don't care as long as the poor are also seeing their living standards raised, right. which is what you would see in economic growth. Mm. This government is saying, we don't care about the the um, the gap between the richest and the poorest. We just want the poorest to be less poor. Right. Um, whereas, you know, the other side of the argument would be, oh, that's dangerous. Mm. You uh, actually, we want the two to be closer together. And government would say, well, what is the point of that if the poor are poorer? So right. why why hinder the rich becoming richer if mm. that also hinders the poorest from progressing? Right. Who cares about the gap between the two as long as the poorest are coming up? And that's yeah, why they say... The water mark is going higher. The water mark, exactly. So their argument is if you have a higher rate of economic growth, that, mm. that will deliver that. And therefore... Their view is any policies that can do that, regardless of who the be- it might benefit more or less, yeah. we're going to do them. Uh, that's their argument, and therefore what they what they want to do is cut taxes um, and they think that is a key uh, there's that is a key plank of their economic plan in terms of unlocking growth so that is both uh, a penny off uh, income tax for everybody and then also slashing the 40 getting rid of the 45 percent for those who earn over 150,000 mm-hmm. and also unlocking the uh, the bankers bonus tax so uh, uh, cap sorry so bankers can now be bonused uh, whatever they want yeah uh, that one I'll, I'll give a counter argument to bankers bonuses are normally earned when people the markets are roaring and people are doing well the markets are dying you know it's been it's been a absolutely dire year yeah but so, look this is the this is uh this is just a to- this is a tone and body language as it were saying we don't mm. want to get them it might be that this year it has no impact it won't but it won't there you go but what it signals to what they would say it signals to investors it signals to the public that they want to get out of the way they don't want to tax the rich people now it might not have right. any impact this year but it's a signal mm-hmm. uh, and so the, gov- so the government would say we're getting out of the way we're going to let people make money and we're going to let the richest in society do what they want to make more money and it will flow through um, it will flow through economic growth and the poorest will uh, also benefit from that mm. um so that so that is so that is the that is their that is their argument uh on on tax cuts and then what you have is the reform in terms of trying to get out of the way so they want to get rid of planning reform they want to more more fracking mm. um and they want more deregulation in an attempt to try and uh, change the supply side now those things in isolation they would argue as well are not actually that radical because 
these we're currently living in a time where actually the tax burden is higher than it ever has been sure the taxes that they're removing are actually recent additions so you know if you go look back at Tony Blair's era taxes mm. were lower than what they are moving the tax burden to right so the Tory part the, the Prime Minister would say if you look historically these are not um, we're not even moving to a lower tax burden we had in place 15 years ago right so why is this seen as such a radical move mm. this would be their argument um, and there and 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 in, and so in the, so in that context they're saying we need to make these changes to make the country more competitive and to drive economic growth uh, and those would be their arguments and why mm. why and so the counter would be why not wait until um, inflation is maybe under more control sure. uh, wait until some of these other cut the current global macro issues are tackled yep yep and again the government's line would be um, you cannot wait to do this this needs to be done now we've been waiting for a decade to to, to start, start to drive economic growth right it needs to be done now and yeah. so the government would say there will be some short-term pain markets will need to will take time to understand their position and there may be some short-term they would argue fluctuations yep um but over the medium to long term this is where the country needs to be to be competitive mm-hmm. uh, and everybody in society will benefit from this yeah over a i think they would say a three-year period so that's the government's line so yeah. do we think it's uh, almost akin to you know getting a, a booster for covid that you know you, you stick it in your arm it's going to be painful for a little while you'll feel unwell but eventually you'll come out better is, is that that's the government's the analogy? line that, well yeah, i guess so that's the government's mm. the government's line is there will be a lot of short-term disruption yeah while people understand what they're doing have com- um, start to believe that they have the let's say the political metal to do some of these things mm. Um, and over a period of time, um, over a period of time, they will you'll see the benefits. Yeah. Um, and they and that and that is the you know um, that that's the line that's the line that's their argument. But I guess the reason why it's enraged people so much, the policy itself, or or, or the mini budget, in my view, has been to do with the fact that. Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng essentially have adopted an economic theory mm-hmm. known as trickle-down economics. And we're not entirely sure whether it actually creates the economic growth that they're claiming. Mm-hmm. And so we, are, we, we know that, for example, if you say to um, business owners, and you, you don't put a monetary value on it, but you say for business owners, we're going to you know, tax you less, that helps, right? Yeah. But we don't know that everyone earn, earning above 150k if you say we're going to tax you less it it helps the economy we don't know that there's there's no i i don't i've not seen any kind of arguments for that and so it it's very hard to see it as anything other than a nod to bankers or, or folks who are kind of in that bracket and so the reason it's enraging folks so much is because if we are having kind of such a crisis you know we should have short-term solutions maybe for less you know affluent folk but fair enough if we are going with a long-term play and it you know is kind of in the interest of the greater good and the economy that you should at least still be able to see in that theory how it is going to directly 
improve the lives of say the middle or the, the lower classes okay N- not a proven theory agreed uh, and I think obviously when you talk about you know multiplier effects as an example which means obviously you put uh, five pound in someone's pocket you know they will go out and spend it in the coffee shop that person etc and then there's knock on effect uh, and that happens but are we getting caught up in this whole you know okay you're not taxing the rich etc etc are we a little bit get caught, you know, caught up in the sense that there's a lot of entitlement I feel in society in the sense that it doesn't matter where your bracket is in terms of economics or your household or you know your 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 economic situation but if you want something you want it and you should be able to have it or have access to credit to get it is that something that we need to look at um, you know each individual household and person to live within their means have we got ahead of ourselves across households yeah i mean i i would i would say yes um you know consumption is a massive issue and access to yeah. credit you know um it's it's interesting because we're talking about bankers bonuses mm. and you know we're talking about access to credit yeah. and when obama uh, came up with dodd frank you know yep. it was effectively saying that we need a way to look at credit in a more healthy way right like we need to look at the industry and just think very very carefully about how we allocate credit yep. and then dish it out as a product mm. we're i don't see how we're pretty much back there again right like mm. in terms of borrowing credit consumption we're exactly back there again that's why inflation's happening right because yeah. everyone's got too much money and access to it yeah. and the, the, and that's again another issue with liz and quasi's policies is you could see maybe the long-term play but like Hamza pointed out, in the context of inflation, mm. it's very difficult to s- see which policy are we actually pursuing. And then so suddenly it is, well, are you just helping, are you just helping the folks out who put you in power? Um, I, th- I think politicians will do what they need to do to survive and to, to, you know, to hold their spot, essentially. So, you know, that's yeah, always what's leveled at the Conservative Party and it all, always has been. Um, but um, but I think not that I'm justifying, and I and I can understand what what Hamza's explanation was, and it, it yeah. kind of it, it gives it a bit more context as opposed to just the whole you know Robin Hood scenario that, or the reverse of the Robin Hood scenario that you take from the rich and give to the poor. The, it's not like you're taking away from the poor, yeah. but it's not you're not sort of you know punishing higher taxes you know on higher income earners. But uh, yeah, I think it's a difficult balancing act for sure. Um, the, the, I think the bit that that really really punished the government this week was was actually almost none of the politics. It was how it, it you know how the policies um, collided with reality, as it were, and the markets, who which aren't a political being. No, absolutely, they simply not. make decisions based on their financial interest, and the yeah. market isn't one homogenous thing. The market is collection of individuals making decisions, and then you know the, the amalgamation of those decisions causes a general mo- causes a general movement. Yeah. So it's quite funny when when people talk about the market or the markets. You know, mm. these markets are all different people, individuals making decisions that they think will lead to them making money essentially sure. uh, or where it's better for them to use their money and momentum plays a whole part in that because that can overtake any any decision making really and 
causes a herd mentality exactly right? and that's what we've seen exactly so you know there's some you you know you the labor party all of a sudden is the best friend is is using the markets to uh yeah. you know to justify their policies when yeah. you know the, the normally it's a labor party saying you know ignore the market ignore big business yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that you know, this you know what we're interested in society so it's quite yeah. it's interesting to see that but you know what you know the real problem here is the spike in interest rates mm. and the spike in um mortgage products being taken off the market and you know in the space of two days there was something like 40 percent of uh, mortgage products in the uk were removed mm. because those banks want to want to um in- come back to the market with new higher rates and that is a huge, huge problem for the government because you'd have, would have, in the, I assume, they would have wanted those rates to gradually move over the next two years higher. Mm. They obviously wanted rates to go higher. That yep. was clear, but they wanted it. And the Bank of England was clearly going to raise rates. The Bank of England was going to do so in a way that they would have aimed for a what would be called a soft landing. Yep. So to gradually take inflation out with a gradual increase of interest rates that people yeah. could afford and people yeah. generally across the board. Um, obviously, the whole point of raising interest rates is to cause some pain um, in order to remove inflation, but to do so in a gradual way so the whole economy isn't kind of blown up. Um that has now got to be revisited because those interest rates are going to spike in the next couple of months Mm. which is going to cause a huge impact on um, on people's mortgages and be able and um, affordability of housing and that is where i think the government has will now be looking at a thing oh we've really misjudged this because that Mm. does just cause um that just just put you straight into recession territory yeah soft landing or any sort of thinking around a soft landing is completely gone Know, those higher rates, interest rates are going to spike straight into a recession, and then it's about how the government can manage that period, and yeah. that is really, really diff- that collision with reality of just kind of a kind of political econ- economic theory mm. that they believed in, and they thought would chuck be chucked out. Some people would argue with them about whether it was right or wrong, and they'd have to kind of political battle was yeah. one thing that I think they were ready to, or they thought they were ready to take mm. on. Yeah, but they weren't ready to take on was. The markets have completely said no, yes. or the, and caught, and by doing so, have caused an effect on society and and livelihoods across yeah. the country mm. in a way that means it's very very difficult for this government to now have any sort of political argument because people are just saying, "I haven't got any money." It's it's yeah. a gr- it's a great point, and the thing is, because the the theory that they came up with is is very very strong. If you read about it, you can you know th- mm. there's they've got some uh, the soundness to their policy, yeah. but they didn't think through every scenario. Exactly what Hamza said about uh, the impact on mortgages and the end result being okay. You know, we could end up with folks being homeless or yeah. the economy you know going into recession. Yeah, and I think that's why you saw quasi. Uh, looking so awkward the following day where you would mm. usually expect Tory MPs and lobbyists etc everyone to be coming out in full swing no matter how wild or bold the policy is right. they can usually defend it sure. but I think some of the results were completely unanticipated mm. and they comp- they caught the Tory party off guard and so quasi if you look at the, the media the following day after the budget was announced um, you know he wasn't giving interviews he, he looked very red faced you know he looked very shy from what he had said and so I, I think yeah, Hamza spot on there. Because now, in order to to shore up the issue, there's only really kind of two options. One is to reverse some of those policies, yeah, um, 
which politically wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. be good. And the other option is to cut fine, cut spending, right? Which looks to be you have to do something one way or the other. You've got to right? do something exactly. Yeah. So it yeah. looks to be that that is the route that they're going to go down, which previously they hadn't wanted to, mm. um, and that is now going to cause them huge political problems because originally they were in cuckoo land where they thought they could yeah. do all these um, tax cuts with the spending yeah and so therefore there's no real political problem yeah. if the if you know if 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 the, okay be huge if but if the markets hadn't reacted in the way they had and mm. still had confidence for whatever reason yeah you know their assumption was that they would have been able to have tax cuts with the current level of spending and therefore almost everyone is a winner Right, it's it's cloud cookie land, but everyone is a winner, and the only thing you're left with is this kind of political argument around who should be benefiting more, which they thought they could win. Now you've got a situation where they realise, you know, if they can't get money into people's pockets, I sort out the 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 um, financial markets reaction to the budget. Yep. They're in just a completely different territory because people will have no money. Yeah, and therefore, what do you do? Reverse? Can't do that cut spending that's where they're going to have to go and that's going to be a huge problem i mean that's something you have to do though right it's simple yeah. economics if you're not got the revenue coming in from a tax perspective how do you go and spend other than printing money which will cause you another issue exactly and i think that's where that's where as a society and as a government people have to recognize that that you can't just carry on spending your future it doesn't make sense you know you have to take some repercussions somewhere but how do we cut spending, right? Mm. And this is why I found... Uh, so my personal opinion now is in... I, I I disagreed with the policy because I think taxes should be going up after something like COVID, right? We need to increase spending on public services. We're in an energy crisis. We, you know, we need to essentially spend more on the NHS potentially mm. you know, to fight viruses like COVID. Yeah. So the, the argument for spending on public services is stronger than ever. Um, and Listen, they got a clap. <laughs> yeah, they got a clap. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, every week. Yeah, that's it. We can't turn that into sterling. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, um, so for me, I understand the theory. You know, and I, I, I actually admire um, politicians who, who try bold ideas. Right? Yeah, like fair something point. different. Fair point. Okay. You know, whether yeah. it's, it, I agree with it or not, yeah, it's a absolutely. bold idea, and yeah. I'm glad someone's doing it. But the time, I think, for me, the timing w- was completely off. And I think post it's the post-COVID era. So I think that's what Liz is working against. I mean, some of the fallout that we've seen, I uh, had a listener again who's, who's uh, come on board and said today, are we not already in a recession? Negative equity is inevitable, irrespective of the speed of increase in rates. Landlords are already throwing properties in auctions. New build properties sitting empty as buyers are unsure of outgoings. So they're waiting to calculate affordability. The only positive from the government perspective is that all international dirty money will hit the UK and buy property in London. Maybe that's what the government want. So the interesting about thing about view. recession, I think there is an official definition of... Um, yeah, uh, three quarters of negative growth. That's the yeah. definition of a recession. And then the interesting part is you never truly know where the bottom is, right? Because yeah. the money leaves the system in such a gradual way that, yeah, so you could argue that we're in a recession, but we haven't really seen the full effects of it for a long time yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 not a straightforward discussion. I mean, it's I mean, you can see what the economic theory is, but how it plays out in practice. Um, but 
I think you know you, you'll see the effects on people. The fact is, if your mortgage goes up from I don't know, you know, a grand to two grand, you know, that's going to really impact you because you're talking about what twelve thousand pounds a year. Which, if you talk about that in pre-tax earnings, you know, you're, you're talking upwards of eighteen, nineteen k that you would have yeah. to earn, and you know that that's that's where I guess the the have not scenario is a problem and what will it lead to potentially people thinking okay I'll just take out a higher mortgage so I can have cash in hand to pay off the interest yeah and then you're just perpetuating debt upon debt and that's going to at higher interest rates yeah well the question was really good in the sense that you know it's talking about dirty money coming into property and you know but I guess what precludes that is property became a commodity and we allowed it Mm. to become a commodity and then we allowed investors to exploit that commodity yes Yes. You know, and so this is where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, let's not let's not be you know, you know, pull wool over each other's eyes. The fact is that um, when it comes to um, you know foreign money, uh, Russians in particular, you know, those from the Middle East, they have supported the bubble in central London, and you know, super prime for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, I mean, the, the Roman Abramovich example was just yeah. so amazing, right? Like if you. If you've ever uh, looked at money laundering or worked in sanctions, you'll know that the the concept of the British government sanctioning somebody as prominent as Roman Abramovich, yeah. who's got such significant assets in the UK, yep. and so closely tied into the fabric of like uh, you know football, yeah, um, it was it was insane from a sanctions perspective, absolutely insane that they were willing to do that to yeah, essentially their own infrastructure, right? Yeah. Like that Roman was a part of the UK's infrastructure, yeah, and. Um, so, you know, they've had to really go through this painful process of untying themselves from all this corrupt money. Mm. Um, and so that that question about foreign money is a really, really hot topic. And it, it, yeah. it is, but then natural economics will also tell you the fact is that an investor abroad who owns dollars, the UK is 30% cheaper than it was a month ago for him. 30% cheaper, simply because the exchange rate has gone from, well, not as high as 130, but maybe six months ago, yeah. So that's, you know, do you blame people to take opportunity in this global economic world that we live in? Yeah, why not? But uh, I'm getting quite a few messages. So what I'll do is I'll repeat the uh, phone number. Uh, you can call us rather than blowing my phone up um, on 0208 687 7878. Um, it's, uh, you know, we have keyboard warriors, which is fine. I'll then read out a few more then, Charles. Uh, th- th- there's, there's, there's one caller who wants to call in, so I'm, I'm just repeating the number for his benefit. And I've just told him rather than messaging me, just, uh, you know, feel free to give us a call. Um, you know, because obviously this is something that affects all of our lives. Um, but just, bef- you know, touching on that point, I mean, we talked about interest rates uh, quite extensively. Um, and that's something that I think I just wanted to touch on, because obviously from an Islamic perspective, um, this is something that the fourth caliph, Hazrat Zatahir Ahmed, he had talked about uh, in 93 um, in a Q- Q&A session. Uh, and he talked about why is, or the question was asked, why does Islam forbid interest? And his agree um, um, explanation was, a society that can borrow money on interest is given permission to spend its future in the present time. What happens is that if I, for example, need some money to spend on a luxurious car, or a hotel or a house, or some other items of luxury, 
and the rate of my earnings is too low, but my impatience without limit, and I cannot wait until I have earned enough to fulfill my desire, the system based on usury or the interest system, an opportunity to borrow money from the banks, apparently what I'm doing is that I'm borrowing from my own future so I can become poorer with the passage of time. And sometimes it becomes almost impossible for me to service the debts which I've got myself burdened with. Now, this is not just an individual problem from then on. It becomes a national problem and continues to become more and more complex. So I think in that way, just having that explained, um, because we always talked about, you know, a lot, a lot of people say, oh, interest is Aram. Okay, so why is it Aram, you know? Uh, and then when you get that kind of explanation and borrowing from your future and, and basically getting it above and over your head, I think that, and, and when you when you multiply that out to millions of people who are doing this as a society, do we need to look at ourselves rather than just always bashing the government about tax cuts? You're not doing this, you know. You're not spending enough. NHS is, you know, creaking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When can, do we take responsibility? So, I think you're, it's a great point, and you know, I I think first off, we do need to take more responsibility. Yeah. But at the same time, the controls do need to be there because we just know that you know you can't you can't expect society to govern itself right so and true credit credit is one of those things where if you just keep handing it out people will keep taking it right yeah. it's and the problem isn't credit as such i would say you know i think maybe if it was simpler you know it could work mm-hmm. it's the fact that we've made a derivative out of everything right like credit can be yes. like packaged up and passed on and you know you can repackage it and you can you know turn it into something else and yeah which is where the u.s crisis happened exactly right? the subprime lending was was that exactly. packaged over and over so you know it's almost like we maybe could have got away with credit but not credit in excess and not credit in complex like complex credit mm-hmm. um and you know i think that's so i think we absolutely have got carried away is the answer <laughs> yeah yeah no i think yeah i mean that's definitely something that we we need to look at um, you know, His Holiness also uh, mentioned that uh, industry flour- flourishes on the systems, on this system is in fact catering for requirements of the day or the year and expands itself uh, on requirement that it's not natural but artificially boosted. After a while, buying power becomes more reduced and more and more until it reaches a point of stalemate. The buying power of the country as a whole becomes very little um, and the servicing of the debt itself becomes a huge problem for the country to overcome. Um, and industry suffers heavily and so does trade and the result is that such times economic crises appear um, so I mean that that's just sort of a, a broad explanation um, but uh, while we're on the line uh, I think we have a caller who's on hold um, Zia are you there can you hear us Salaam guys welcome to the show um, have you been listening in yeah I've, I've been listening in for the last sort of uh, half an hour or so great discussion um, and some really, really good points made. I actually wanted to go back a little bit um, towards Hamza's point uh, towards the start of this hour where he talks about um, ignoring the, or at least the, the government's point of view, rather, I should uh, say. Sure. About ignoring the difference between, um, you know, the income levels of the rich and the poor. And I think you mentioned something about, you know, raising that watershed mark, that watermark mm. a little bit higher. To ensure that you know the uh, fine, you know the gap grows between the two, but at least the poor, you know, are slightly less poor and, and slightly better off. 
I think I, I would argue with that as well, that long-term, wouldn't it be the opposite effect? Because if the rich can afford certain things at a higher price, wouldn't that raise the level of, you know, our everyday spend in the future as well? And inflation would be literally off the hook. Hamza? Yeah, look, I'm not, I mean, I'm not advocating this line. This is, I'm, I'm kind of relaying the, what, I, what I think is the government's position. So let me just make that point. Secondly, I think, um, look, I, I don't know whether this will be successful or not um, and whether, uh, you, whether you can do it. But it's an interesting argument that, that can, and just at a theoretical level, whether the, um, you know, whether you as an individual are more interested in your own personal wealth and your own personal situation or whether you are more interested in how you compare to those around you so there's lots of research being done on this if you as an ind- are you as an if you as an individual are on let's just say 20, you're earning 20,000 pounds and all your friends around you and all the people around you are earning 15,000 pounds you might be you might be pretty happy if you're earning £25,000 but all your friends around you are earning £35,000, are you happier or less happier? Um, and I think that type of theoretical argument is quite interesting and I think that is the argument that the, that Liz Trust and the Tory party want to have, which is we want to raise the standards for everybody, in which case you should be better off, be able to make better decisions. Now look, whether this is, whether you're, I mean your point is whether that is actually going to be the outcome or not which i don't know i don't you don't know the 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 kind of research on whether it would be um, possible or not is kind of inconclusive but i think actually at fundamental level it's quite an interesting position to take which is you know should you care if the richest are getting further away from you if you are getting richer and you are able to have a better standard of life does it matter and i think that is quite an interesting argument to have I think, and my second point really was going to be, and I completely, you know, agree with your point of view on that, but I think the second point is really, is it right? Because, you know, from an Islamic perspective, we should always try and have equality to be able to have some kind of justice in society. Mm. So if we're actually, you know, creating a wider gap between the rich and the poor... Mm -hmm. How would that help society at large? Well, th- this is the question, isn't it? So you, um, and, I, and I totally agree with you, and the, the argument would be more around if you have a more equal society, you should be able to raise the standards of the poorest more significantly. I think that is actually the argument, not that you stop the poorest from improving, but you keep the rich down and therefore the gap is smaller. I don't think that is actually the argument. If the argument was, was that you're going to keep the, the poorest in society down at a certain level but don't worry the richest aren't that far away i don't think that is a good outcome isn't it a better outcome if the poorest in society are able to live better standard of living isn't that what we all want everybody to be rising up the uh, the chain as it were everyone to be able to have better standard of living now i now my view is that you don't get that by creating these uh, unequal policies and you don't get that outcome by having uh, a bigger gap between rich and poor but at a theoretical fundamental level i'm much more interested in the poorest in society being able to live a higher quality life frankly i think that if they're able to do that but there are others in society who 
let's say, are able to go higher. I don't think that matters. If you were able to give those poorest in society a better standard of life, better health care, um, better end outcomes, better a better ability to look after their families, better ability mm. to uh, spend money on their children, I think that is a better outcome regardless of what's happening elsewhere in society. I don't think it happens if you let the the highest earners go completely wild. I don't think it happens. But if it did, I still think that that is pro- that, that that is a better outcome, isn't it, for that individual? Yes, yes, I do. I, I completely agree. And and I mean, the point that I'd say on on that finally is that you know where we've given you know, the government's given uh, more carte blanche at the higher end by reducing the upper limit tax and things like that and the kind of levels it affects I've not I'm not going to say something that's costed at all so you know bash me for it but wouldn't it have been far better to raise the the starting point at which we all pay tax on our basic rate from where it is at you know 12,800 or 600 or whatever at the moment uh, all the way up to something around the 20,000 mark because wouldn't that raise the standard of the poor faster and then you know, give a small saving to everybody across the board, rich or poor. So it means that it's more equal and more just in that regard. But it means that the people at the bottom can raise their standard immediately. We can almost start living a more equal and better life. But then you're not stopping people at the upper end from continuing to grow. Oh, look, look, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, there's much better ways um, to deliver economic growth um, that is apparently the priority of the government. I think there's policies that, you know, even within tax, you know, the thresholds at the moment are, are, are pretty crazy where you've got, you know, one rate but at, at uh, £20,000, uh, mm. up to £20,000, another rate over £40,000, and that's it. Yeah. Until yeah. 150,000. I mean, that in itself is pretty crazy. Um, and so, if you know, if you're looking at this properly, I think you know you would shift a lot of this around. The same with you know council tax still done on like these prehistoric kind of um, house valuations doesn't make any sense. A lot of this stuff needs to be updated. So I I totally agree with you. There's much better ways to deliver economic growth. You know, they always say that if you put money into the poorest in society, a much higher percentage of that money is going to be spent immediately into the wider economy and benefit you know a much greater number of people you know you give the poorest in society an extra hundred pounds a month that is all going to be spent in the economy you know you give the richest in society some you know additional amount of money actually a lot of it just gets saved um because they don't need it or you get spent on other things but you know so i totally agree with that but i think politically where this government wants to move the argument which to be fair isn't an argument that's been had for the last decade is quite interesting and i think you know there isn't actually agreement on that whether inequality in itself is simply a good or bad thing or actually are we just looking to increase the the living standards of the poorest now i'm not saying their policies are going to achieve um achieve that but i think theoretically it's an interesting argument and an interesting um debate to have um zia just obviously just on your point that you made when you talk about equality um is it not again something that we've talked about um is um you know this entitlement uh, scenario inequality happens why because some people want to outwork others there's also that endeavor no no i completely agree and i don't know you're, you're absolutely right when you say that um there is a level of entitlement i think this is where from a society mm. from a societal perspective 
I think um, you know people are a little bit dwarfed in terms of what their um, wants and needs are and, and what their goals should be in life. I think we've moved too far, mm. you know, towards uh, a money-minded uh, society yeah. without looking at what the larger picture is and, and what our roles and responsibilities are as human beings, really. So you know, similar kind of thing where you see that it tends to be people at the bottom or middle level that tend to sort of give more for charitable causes. Mm. Um, you know, you'd expect people that have more money to be able to, to do that kind of thing. So, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that it's not about um, entitlement at all. I don't think people should have as easy access to easy credit. Um, but, you know, and, and Hamza's right where, you know, it's an interesting argument to have to, to try and do it a different way because we haven't had it for a decade. But without bashing the government even more, we've had the same Tory government for the last 12 years. So it's their austerity measures yeah. that's kind of got us to this position in the first. And, and that's, I was going to, I was going to, sorry. Sorry, no, go yeah, I was just going to say as well, I think, and to, to just add to what Hamza was saying, so I think, you know, my view is that the, the theory stands up, but the question of whether wealthier folk are actually, you know, is somebody who used to spend £30 at Tooting Market now going to spend £100 in Tooting Market? And the answer is no, you know, because obviously as people get wealthier, they change where they go, the means change. And so I think, you know, the, the theory is well-intentioned and, and very sound, um, but how it works in practice is questionable. Right. And I think also what happens as you get into, into this, kind of, at this kind of level is when you start tapering off um, the upper-end taxes, um, question to you, Charles, I think would be, wouldn't they want to try and save and invest for taking advantage of the recession rather than spending it back in the economy? Um, I think I think when you look at, especially when you talk about the sort of you know ultra high net worth and you know those sort of people, they will look at it long term and they will take that opportunity. Um, you know the markets, as Hamza talked about, are quite homogenous. There's a lot of different uh, you know contributors, but there can be a bounce and they will think long term. But how does that benefit people on the lower end of the rung? They don't have the disposable income to park that into their market, and even their pensions have suffered. And they probably don't even have the access. So it can cause more inequity, actually, in the longer run, I think. Yeah. Which will be interesting. But, um, but uh, yeah, one last question, Zee, before you go, because we've got another caller straight afterwards. In the industry that you work in, because I understand you're in the property sector, how have you seen an effect from, um, you know, this uh, initial uh, budget? What's, what's been the reaction in your industry? I think... Um uh, to be honest, a lot of panic um, amongst certain people, people that aren't as experienced. Um, and I think um, general deflation and negativity, I think, um, would be the two words I'd use. Because where you see a lot of first-time buyers trying to get into the market, um, they're, they're willing to pay that slightly higher interest rate for a higher risk with a lower deposit. Mm. But, you know, all of a sudden, um, as you start seeing a lot of the products removed, and, and from my, you know, understanding of such a lot of those products have been removed to the ones with product fees because banks can't accurately price them into the market and therefore the ones without product fees are, are still available um but what it's kind of doing is the banks are sort of passing that risk back onto the consumer mm. immediately and i think what will end up happening is that the consumers will start looking at it and thinking you know what i i really can't get involved in something like this because 
uh, it's too big a risk. And so I think more widely, as, as you and I spoke about before as well, rents have been, you know, off the hook mm. pretty much this year. But I think that will continue to grow. I think rents will rise as less and less buyers um, enter the market. Sure. And I think now it's going to end up being a very much buyer's market than a seller's. Right. Interesting, interesting. Good to hear that from a, a real-world perspective and how you're seeing the difference. Z, thank you very much for calling in. We really appreciate your contribution today. Pleasure. Well done, guys. Thank you. So, um, we will move on to our second caller, um, Kayum Rashid Saab, who is a regular contributor to Saturday Morning Live. Kayum, you had a point to make? Yeah, peace be on you, gentlemen. Um, I just wanted to kind of make the same, pace, uh, same uh, comment that Z made, but... Mm. Uh, in respect of property that uh, it is I don't think it's a buyer's market as yet I but I think and by the end of the year it will become a buyer's market but the problem is that a lot of people who might a lot of people are going to be looking to sell but they're still going to be left with a debt on their head because mm. as much as they'll be able to get rid of the property but the value of the property is going to be less than the mortgage they took out so the, the, the issue of debt will still be there on 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 top of the the, the, the person um, secondly the, the point Hamza made about somebody earning twenty thousand is looking at someone who's earning twenty five thousand mm. he's correct in that they will be looking at it instead of maybe looking to increase their income what they're going to do is they're going to go and look to maybe compete and go out and get credit American and American and UK economy is is based on credit it, mm. it's is based on debt yeah that's how that's how these two countries work without that we would be we would be finished mm. and finally I, I think the government got it wrong um i think this demonizing uh, what's happened in um is that people have started to demonize the rich mm. saying that they're getting this benefit whereas most business people most people who fall in that bracket have actually said we never asked for this yeah. They, 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 this, this has kind of backfired because all the arguments that you guys have made are actually being made by people who are in business saying we never said give us a tax cut because we, we're, we're in a good position as we are so mm -hmm. I think the government has kind of there wasn't any holistic or joined up or cohesive thinking um, and a lot of the ministers within their own cabinet said they were not aware that this was going to happen and, and finally, this issue of, of Chelsea, allegedly, but the thing is, um, what people don't realize is Abramovich um, was in America when the deal happened. Okay. And sanctions were put on Abramovich in UK, but USA have never put sanctions on Abramovich. That's true. And, so, and, and it was funny that initially the buyer for Chelsea was British and then it was changed to an American buyer. And the price from 2.5 billion went to 4.2 billion dollars. So allegedly, there's loads of things that goes around. But there was a lot of lip service. When if you're going to put sanctions on someone, you put them on straight away. Yeah, you they don't waited. say oh, we're going to give, we're going to put sanctions on you in 28 days. Yeah, yeah. And 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 so so you know from um, from a PR perspective, you know it looks terrible. And and the government again, as I say. They haven't. Uh, I don't think there was any homework done. It was all. Um, it's all kind of backfired on them. Nothing has actually worked for them. Yeah, you're spot on about sanctions because I think you know 28 days. That's enough time to get your assets and cash out of the 
yeah. out of the target. Yeah. Well, look, w w he openly did it. When Abramovich, when they put sanctions on him, he had his yacht in internet. Um, he he had his yacht in European waters, and he openly moved it to Turkey, Turkey which was yeah. not under sanctions. Yeah. So you know, if you're going to give somebody time, of course they're going to look to protect themselves. Yeah. Yeah, but so, so you know, a lot of lip service, and and people are waking up to to look. You know, a lot of people say right wing, left wing, centre politics. It doesn't matter. These kind of um, uh, these kind of financial situations affects everyone, irrespective of where your politics lies, and that also goes against the government. Just one question so, on so the whether sanction. Whether they've done a right wing policy or a left wing policy, it makes no difference. Just yeah. one question on the sanctions. I think that the 28, forgive me if I'm incorrect on this, I think 28 days isn't for the benefit of the individual. It's for the benefit of other individuals who are doing business with that individual, isn't it? So that, that they can unwind their position. So if you're an individual, you're doing business with someone who isn't sanctioned, you, you know, you've got no issue. You're, doing, you're going about your business, transacting with them. You've got, um, you know, agreements with them. You need time to unwind your position. Otherwise, you're going to be um, punished by those states as well. So you need the time don't you and that's fair to give you 28 days so so therefore you have the 28 days so that those other third parties can unwind their positions it's a good question Agreed. i would say the only uh thing about that is um they do give a bit of time but um for um other folks to get out of those positions it's generally general licensing but usually it, no, it is I, a duration, I, I agree yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying hamza but end of the day what that shows is then well, it's not okay to do business with someone you're going to sanction, but you're going to give some time to people who were doing business with somebody who you think shouldn't be done business with. The principle is different for, 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 for him, and you're applying a different principle for people who were maybe earning an income from 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 uh, his his status? But no, 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 but I'm saying sanction on someone. I'm saying, Kareem, you're, you're, you're doing has got to be across the board. But I'm saying you're doing business with Mr. X. Yeah. You personally, mm -hmm. you've got a load of agreements with him, and then all of a sudden he's sanctioned, and you can't do business with him, and you're in a mm -hmm. position you person you haven't done anything wrong. You were doing position you were doing business with a acceptable guy. You didn't you had no issues with him. And um, and then all of a sudden he's sanctioned, and you and you're going to be at a loss because you can't have your agreements fulfilled. You might have given you know you can't get money back. You can't get those services from him. You know you're you're looking at it going well. Surely I should have been given a bit of time to unwind these positions. Yeah, it's, but it's, surely I should have known that that's business. In business, there's a pros and cons. <laughs> you see this this notion in today's. I, I agree with what you're saying in principle. In reality. <laughs> As a business, there will be profits, there will be loss, and it will be a loss I would have to, you know, it, it's something, it's really? not about fair or unfair. Yeah. Well, it's not about fair or unfair. In reality, you're, you're talking about fair and unfair. The fact that suddenly uh, an interest rate is going to double or if, if, is that fair on the, on the, on the person who's buying a, a property? Yeah. Isn't, well, just because it's a bank, just because it's a bank doing it, it's okay. Yep. But if if a third person, as an individual, is doing it, it suddenly is is, is deemed uh, in a negative way. So if what I, I'm saying yeah. is, in, biz, in business, in business, uh, th there will be losses you will make. It, it won't be about fair and unfair. But, we don't live in a fair world. We we, we don't live in an equity world. We don't live in a world where, uh, you know, um, that that uh, uh, you know everyone's going to get a fair share of it. That's why uh, you know His Holiness always talks about justice, equity. And, and and fair governance we don't have that yeah 
and and just so I can jump in, I think so f- with Roman Abramovich, I, it it is a bit of both, right? In the sense that um, he was very heavily tied into the UK system, mm. and then yeah. the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. You know, we're talking about maximum fifty people in that office, um, and they had to immediately, you you know, with with the staff that they had, draft up sanctions for Roman Abramovich keeping in mind exceptions, keeping in mind everything Hamza's spoken about, about business impact, etc. So I think there is definitely an element of um, kind of trying to anticipate what the impact on the business community would be. But I also agree with you, Guillaume, that um, it was a bit too long in my view. You know, they essentially gave Roman the nod to say, you're going to be sanctioned. And it took a bit too long for it, for them to get to that point for it to have any real impact. Plus, we always fall into this special relationship gap. Should they not have spoken to America? Should there not have been some joint thinking? Hold on. We're sanctioning them. Are you going to do the same? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, if you look at the Americans' uh, sanctions program on Russia, it's far more um, strict and imposing than the UK uh, off-sea one. So I absolutely agree. There was a slight disconnect there, and it doesn't entirely make sense. That's all I want to say, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you for your call plenty. today, Guillaume. Very Thank much you. appreciate your views. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's good that we've uh, triggered some uh, discussions and Triggering some heated, and some heated yeah. debate. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah, no, it's good. Look, I mean, I think when we, when we sit here and we talk and we discuss uh, these sort of things, it's easier, you know, just like popul- uh, politicians do, to play to the audience, you know, and just to give the popular view. But I think it's... It's also important to, to give a balanced view and uh, obviously uh, look at you know what things we can take on. I think we need to look at, at oneself and look from there and see what the effect of that can be. Just like cutting interest rates, or sorry, cutting tax rates has an effect. I think if we bind together and start taking um, you know, better decisions for one another for the benefit of society, I think those sort of things. I mean, the fact that we live in a first world country and we have food banks... I think that's a pretty sad state of affairs, um, considering where we've come from. Um, you know, obviously, charities like Oxfam and these sort of entities have, have operated for a long, long time. But the fact that we've arrived at food banks being prevalent, probably much more up north than they, they have, ever have. Hey, um, um, but they tried to shut food banks uh, for, over the Queen's funeral and in Wimbledon. And Wimbledon had to do, Wimbledon Council had to do a U-turn on that. Um <laughs> So there's a bit of drama for you around food banks. <laughs> no, but it's uh, that. That's what I'm saying. I think the fact that we've arrived at that position yeah. as a society. I mean, that tells me how much revenue we, as a UK, it doesn't matter which government you're talking about, be it Labour, be it the Conservatives, whoever in power, we do not have you know the revenue to to support society. We had you know for for very many years the NHS was something that was very proud of. You know, people would look upon it. You know, outside of of the UK and say, you know, that's amazing that you have that. But uh, now it just seems, uh, you know, you can't even cater for people's lives, let alone, you know, their medical um, needs and requirements. So I think that's something that needs to be looked at for sure. Yeah. Um, not a not not an easy time. Um, that's ahead of us. But I mean, I think I think ultimately a lot a lot of the things that we discuss here is is very political or not political, but you know, current affairs and, and what have you. But I think. Um, we should focus a little bit more on um, our own responsibility, looking inwardly, and, and, and that 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 comes back to you know your morality, your you know your your faith uh, in something that's greater than you, and, and that's where we, I think 
we as as Muslims obviously that's something we obviously we put our hands our future you know in the hands of Allah that that he will do what's right by us and we you you ultimately then try and make you know good decisions uh, with good morals and I think sometimes when I look at the consumerism of the society that we live in uh, the fact that um, you know even from a from a child's perspective and you're talking about teens early teens there's you know I, I need X Y and Z iPhone I need X Y and Z trainers you know and, and I need them and it's like really is that really essential to your lifestyle yeah is it absolutely essential I don't, and sometimes I think oh, fine you know your peers may have it and that may be something you want but you know if we can instill perhaps better you know work ethics better morals better patience I think that's something that that would have a, a longer-term effect yeah so I think that's been a, a quite an expansive discussion uh, on uh, the economy and the fallout and the after effects and then we appreciate uh, Zia and Kiyum calling in uh, it's always good to get interaction and, and hear what people are thinking you know on on uh, in terms of uh, reactions uh, please join us after the very short break and we'll just do a quick roundup of our sports section join us after the break selections from the writings of the promised messiah upon whom be peace the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam take note how the holy prophet of Islam remained resolute and steadfast in his claim to prophethood from beginning to end in the face of thousands of dangers and a multitude of enemies and threatening opponents. For years on end, he endures such hardship and suffering as increase from day to day, enough to make one despair of success. It is inconceivable for a man with worldly motives to have shown such prolonged endurance and steadfastness. Not only that, by putting forth his claim to prophethood, he even lost the support he had previously enjoyed. The price he had to pay for his one claim was to confront a hundred thousand contentions and invite a multitude of calamities to befall upon his head. He was exiled from his homeland, pursued with intent to murder. His home and belongings were destroyed. Several attempts on his life were made by poisoning. Those who were his well-wishers began to harbour ill for him. Friends turned into foes. For an age which seemed eternity, he braved such hardships, which are beyond a pretender and imposter to suffer through. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Uh, we've had a very uh, interactive show today, and our main topic has taken much of our uh, time today, and it's been a very interesting discussion. Um, but um, just a quick roundup on sports before we wrap up the show. Hamza, um, World Cup's coming. Um, Trent Alexander not being picked for England, one of the top assist uh, for the last two to three years from right back is not good enough to play for England yet Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw are <laughs> can you explain that to me in any footballing sense I would love to hear it I um, I don't think that's I don't think that's possible um, yeah. you know look it's a, re- it's a real shame for him I'm you know, it must be really difficult for him turning up every every time, knowing that he's not going to get any game time. He's not going to play. Yeah. And um, guys, it's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, the team obviously they're struggling a bit in this League of Nations stuff, but That's you know, you'd hope real. exactly. You'd hope it. You know, really, when when it comes to the tournament, mm. they all switch on again. And but this England team is based on the like solid defensive 
foundation isn't it or supposed to be that's what you know that's the last two tournaments that's what's what they've built on just really solid foundations and and, and, and then you know stealing the odd goal getting up the pitch yeah. and getting something for, and I guess your argument would be if if that's what you want to do, you don't want your right back actually to create anything. You just want True. him to sit in and not sit concede. In behind the ball, yeah. Then maybe that's where you go. I mean, it's, it's just, you're right. It's a, sad indi- it's a sad indictment of how we want to play, but... Yeah, but it's not like Reese James is going to run back. I mean, I might be slightly better defender, but he's up there crossing, you know, as is Kyle Walker. You know, they're not paid to to stay back, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're playing systems in their, in their, in their clubs, which is, is quite, you know, on the front foot, but... It seems like we don't yeah. want to take that. I view. mean, Carl, both of those two, I guess, if you want to be technical about it, could play in the in a back three. Can do, yeah. You know, Trent can't do that. So yep. you know, if you look, it, it is what it is. But it is sad. We shall see. Um, so all right, so we've written off England's chances, um, um, which I don't think were there in the first place. Yeah, but I, when did we do that? Well, I wrote them off uh, <laughs> about a lifetime ago. But anyway, um, Z on the boxing side of things, AJ uh, last last fight, last oh, payday yeah. before he gets put out to dry. Yeah, I mean it's it's really tough, right? Like I think I was a big fan of Anthony. Oh, sorry, I am a big fan of Anthony Joshua, and yeah. you know he was. I think it's a great example of how the branding and everything just you know probably got the better of him yes. and you know we've seen him now lose uh, twice three times yes. so yeah Uzi Ruiz, twice and yeah. Ruiz, yeah and so now his next fight is really really pivotal in that you know if firstly will he sign to fight fury you know and i think that's imminent yeah um and if he does and if he loses you know there's no fights left there's out no there. fights left out there and mm. it's like you, is he going? It's going to be like Chisora or like you know, just a journeyman. I mean, the uh, the reactions he has post interview are bizarre. That they was, really yeah. are bizarre. It was unacceptable. And I think that's where the branding is now going a bit out the window, and he's mm. becoming a bit rough around the edges. Maybe that's the aggression he needs to bring because he's unfortunately he's not a skilled pugilist. He is not a boxer. Yeah, he's big. He's you know brawn. But I, I think Tyson Fury's. Uh, very clever to take this fight on you know do that sort of last battle of Britain take it from there yeah um, quick summary uh, thank you for joining us today uh, it's been a very good show and appreciate our callers join us next time